Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. It's a pizza party in the Batcave on episode 266 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. So excited to be sharing my interviews from WonderCon with the cast and the producers, directors, writers of the Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated movie that's going to be coming out in a couple of weeks, first week of June, actually. It's one of those things that, you know, the comic came out, that was great, never thought we'd get this in a million years. So we're going to get to the bottom of that. Also, yep, plenty of spoilers to be dropped when it comes to Game of Thrones. I'll talk about the Game of Thrones finale and break that down. I'm sure you've seen it by now. We'll also talk about Supergirl, some new comics. What's going on with Tom King? There's a lot to get to. And we'll start with the comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer and artist Gabriel Rodriguez, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Let's slide out the long box, turn on the laptop or the tablet, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. And a lot of good stuff this week, but I want to start with a book that I actually reviewed on our website before, at least the last issue anyway. The Flash, number 71 from DC. Joshua Williamson and Howard Porter are the storytellers here. Hi-fi on the colors. You can check out my review of issue 70 at Down and Nerdy Podcast. So this continues the year one storyline. So, yep, you've got a fresh Flash. Barry Allen still trying to learn his powers and, you know, in the very beginning stages until he accidentally time travels and, spoiler alert, meets up with his older self in the future. And not just in the future, by the way. We're talking about a different timeline as well. Timeline is not specified in this issue, by the way, necessarily. So we don't know what Earth or anything like that this is. And I love, first of all, let me talk about Howard Porter, who's one of my favorite artists in comics right now, I have to say. Because just, first of all, the way he he melds what modern comic art has come to look like and classic comic art, it, if you could have the best of both worlds and put it into one book art-wise, it's Howard Porter. I, I That is one of the things I love about his art so much is that it feels so fresh and so old-fashioned at the same time. And I love that he's on a flash book because I feel like you need that to be able to tell that story. And the action sequences in a flash book may be some of the most difficult to to actually have that flash action and deal with the speed and everything like that. And Porter does that so well. And if you don't have somebody like Howard Porter on a book like this, it's not going to work. As good as Joshua Williamson's story is, and I love his writing and have from the beginning from The Flash... You can't do this without somebody like Howard Porter. And 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 they've been lucky to have some great artists on The Flash. He is definitely one of them, so hats off to that. Now, to the story, anyway, again, I'm not going to spoil this, but it's really fun to see Barry interacting with his older self because you've got a Barry Allen has no idea what he's doing and a Barry Allen that literally has a beard. First of all, haven't seen bearded Barry Allen. Not, well, older Barry Allen anyway, since what, Future's End? So that's fun. That was that was cool to see, and we've got these these turtle minions going on. We've got we've got a very turtle theme here in the future, and things didn't have are not going well for Future Flash right now to say the least. So 
Future Flash is trying to figure out how to kind of fix this little problem, and he wants to make sure he's got the right Barry Allen to do it. So he's looking for a Barry Allen from a very specific timeline and sending him to a very specific place. Now, you're dealing with a very green Barry Allen, too, so that's the problem. Absolutely pun intended, by the way, since we're talking about turtles. So you're dealing with a Barry Allen that doesn't really know a whole lot about his powers, but young Barry has a lot of pessimism, and older Barry's like, geez, I really like that, but he has confidence that his younger self is going to be able to get the job done. So then we get to see him get that opportunity, and it doesn't take young Barry long to find out exactly what his mission is and what he's supposed to do. The question is, is he going to be able to do this on his own? And, you know, you could you could make the argument of, well, you know, look at the timeline, because if he couldn't, then would he be there, and would this all be happening? And, okay, I'm not going to jump down the, the, the timeline rabbit hole right now, because I think that's a little bit premature. What I will say is that the last Flash Year One story with Jeff Johns and Ethan Van Shriver, I believe, was on the art. One of my favorite comics in the modern era. Loved it. Loved it so much. So when I found out when Joshua, Joshua Williamson was going to do Year One, I was excited. But then part of me is also like, oh, Year One again? How are we going to do this? This is such a fresh spin on Year One and a Year One story. I love it so much. I... I you wonder how you can go back and and tell a different story like this, and Joshua Williamson is absolutely doing that. I I cannot wait to see where this goes. I can't wait to see how younger Barry's going to deal with the task that he has ahead of him because it seems like a tall order given what's going on in the future. But again, you're dealing with an earlier version of that as well, so maybe that's going to play a role. But this is a perfect way to tell a year one story and make it absolutely fresh. So this is a poll for me. Please continue to read The Flash from DC Comics and Joshua Williamson and Howard Porter and the the group because it is well worth your time and money. I can tell you that right now. Let's go to something a little different now from IDW. It's Road of Bones, number one. It's Rich Doak on the writing, Alex Cormack on the art and colors, and Justin Birch on the letters. Now, this follows two men, Sergey and Roman. They're basically prisoners in a labor camp, and it turns out you do a little digging on the comic at idwpublishing.com. It's a Siberian gulag of Kolyma, or Kolyma. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it. My Russian's a little rusty. This is taking place, too, in 1953. Now, I will also point out, because this is maybe a minor spoiler in the book, I will point out that this takes place before the death of Stalin. Of course, you know Stalin dies in March of 1953. Stalin is mentioned in this book a couple of times by the people in the labor camp. So the assumption is is that Stalin is still alive when this comic is taking place. Now, Sergei and Roman, they're, they're both in this camp. They cross paths. And they're kind of, I wouldn't say that they're necessarily friends, but it seems like they're friends. And Roman tries to help out Sergei as much as he can because Roman's got a little bit more of a, a little bit more important jobs than Sergey does and, and you know his trouble eventually comes out when it's, one of them does something very odd or seems odd at the time and then turns out not very odd at all and it has to do with a childhood fairy tale we find out in an interrogation scene in the book we find out that it has to do with a childhood fairy tale which seems funny at the time but 
maybe not so funny after all if you keep reading the book because these two have a plan to escape and it's with somebody else. Now, you know, in escaping, you have to travel through this giant frozen tundra of a journey. We're talking about Siberia here in February. Think about that for a second. A little bit chilly, a little bit cold, a lot of snow, a lot of ice. You've got to do a lot to survive that. And you and you can't necessarily just swipe supplies to be able to break out of a prison to survive something like that. So how is that going to happen? That's going to be one of the main parts of the story going forward. The art's pretty good. I mean, it's not as good as... You know, some of the other books from IDW, but I mean, it's, it's definitely good. It's definitely got this, it's, it's dark. That's the best way I can describe it. It's really, really dark and it should be for something like this. And it has a little bit of unease to it. It'll make sense when you see it. It has that little bit of unease to it where you're not exactly comfortable with how, with, with, with what you're looking at. And I think that that's a very important point to drive through here and everything's very twisted in a certain way and it, it needs to be that way to be able to tell kind of an eerie story like this so the the art for this book absolutely i think works for what they're doing the story it's hard for it to grab you but if you do a little bit of digging into what exactly you're dealing with here with these gulags and how they were searching for gold and other things for for the russian government and what the aftermath of these gulags are. I mean, if they would have stuck around a little bit longer, maybe. No, I'm not going to get into the into the real-life history portion of this. But it is interesting if you know the history. If you don't, you might not be as locked in to this story as you would otherwise. So I'm going to go ahead and give this a pickup for me because I know a little bit of the history. And we'll see how much of that plays into the book going forward and the fantasy aspect I do think is interesting and find out exactly how that's going to play out and who that's going to play out for I think could be a very interesting part of this story as well so I'll go ahead and give this a pickup so make sure you're definitely putting the flash in your pull box from DC but Road of Bones you might want to grab the first issue or two and see if you dig it before you go ahead and add it to your pull from IDW that's going to do it for my spoiler free reviews of some comics this week and what we're reading up next going to talk about game of thrones and that finale on the down and nerdy podcast hi this is melissa ruffer from manifest and you're listening to the down and nerdy i don't care how long it's been this is a debate that might rage on forever that's right let's talk about the series finale of game of thrones and consider this your massive warning if you haven't said it spoiled for you already or if you haven't watched it then yeah gonna be a lot of spoilers dropped from here on out. And the last thing I want to do is just regurgitate every little thing that you saw on the screen and give you a recap. I mean, I could have done that at downandnerdypodcast.com, but I wanted to wait to talk to you guys about this because there's a lot of strong opinions. And I understand both sides of the argument, really, to to a certain extent. Anyway, so I want to start this off by saying that I actually think that this was a really good way to end the series overall. Now, while some characters I think might have deserved better, and you could make an argument for someone being more deserving than Bran to take the Iron Throne, which is no longer an Iron Throne, by the way, which I'll talk about that in a second, but there are certain cases that you can be made that the endings for certain characters didn't go the way they should have. Although, I want to start with Sansa Stark, because Sansa Stark, basically, at the end of this whole thing, 
you know, with Daenerys being killed by Jon, she basically is now the Queen of the North, right? She actually says in the whole big speech by Tyrion, saying the Bran should be king, and then everybody has a vote, and Sansa's like, nope, the North's always been an independent kingdom, we want to be independent, so now it's the king of the Six Kingdoms, and the North will be independent. So basically, Sansa, through Jon in a certain way, has freed the North. She is the one that freed the North. Not Daenerys, not Jon Snow, not Bran the Broken, as he's now called. No, no, it was Sansa Stark. By all, and all she had to do was speak her demand. That was it. She didn't have to raise a sword, nothing. She just said, this is what we, I want for the North. This is what the North wants. And that's what the North got. And now she's queen of the North. So instead of being on the throne and being the queen of the Seven Kingdoms, which you could make an argument for or against her deserving, she is now going to be the queen of her community of the North, and she'll be a legend to those people for lifetimes to come, far after she has gone from this earth. And you know, Arya didn't want it. She didn't want to stay in the North, and I'll get to Arya in a second too, but here's the deal. Sansa, I think, got what Sansa wanted. I don't think Sansa wanted to rule everyone. Sansa just wanted what was best for the North, and what's best for, quite frankly, her family, right? So I think that even though maybe you could say that Tyrion disrespected Sansa, in that moment by saying that Bran was more deserving, maybe he should have, you know, given Sansa a little bit more, do a little bit more respect. Or you could argue that he did. At the same time, I think Sansa got exactly what she wanted. First of all, Daenerys is out of the way. Second of all, the North is now free and basically free of any rule. They don't have to bend the knee to anybody. And I don't even think they expect them to be to expect them to bend the knee to her. She's just not the bend the knee type. So I think she got exactly what she wanted. Now, as far as Arya is concerned, I think what she get, she got what she wanted too. She wanted out. She didn't want to be part of all the political BS. She wanted to go explore the world. And now she's going to find out what's west of Westeros. What happens when the map runs out? She wants to go find that out. And we get to see her in the beginning of her journey to do just that. And I love that. And I mean, in if you don't if you're not screaming for that spin-off right now, then I don't know what you want from here on out. Because I think that's the spin-off that we need. Whatever the next thing is, that should be it. I want to see what's west of Westeros, don't you? I want to know what Ari's got going on next. And and she's her own woman. And that's what she wanted to be, too, by the way. She didn't want it to be to be Gendry's you know, didn't want to be the the lady of his of of his kingdom. There, she wanted to be her own woman. She was never going to be the lady, as she said. She wanted to be her own person, and she's doing that. And I don't think that she needed anything on the way out either. She did exactly what she wanted to do. She wants to live her life, and that's. I mean, after everything she's been through, she's earned that, and then some. If she doesn't want to stick around. She should get to go do what she wants to do. So I think that that, again, is exactly what she wanted to do. I mean, the only ones that... uh, I think Brienne deserved better. I know that she was writing, you know, about Jamie in the book. She could have been a lot more harsh, but she wasn't. And maybe maybe you think she should have been. Maybe you don't. And I saw somebody on Twitter say, well, why why didn't she, 
you know, start writing about herself. I mean, really, we can't spend 10, 15 minutes on of her writing in that book, right? We don't know that she didn't write something about herself, but that's just not who Brienne is, is it? She's not the one that needs the glory. She doesn't need the credit. She's knighted. She got a say in who was going to be king. She got a vote. That's pretty important for a woman in that in that realm and in that time. You got to think about that for a second. While that's not significant in 2019, and it's ridiculous that it was significant then, it was still significant that she got her say in that. So that is very, very important. And I don't think that's to be overlooked. And she's the first female knight ever. I mean, that's that's pretty good. And that didn't happen in the finale that happened before, but that's that's pretty good. So not everybody had to get what they wanted in the finale. So I think Brienne got what she wanted to a certain extent, but maybe should have gotten a little bit more. I love the fact that Tyrion survives everything, doesn't he? he I mean, and, and he's hand of the king again. That's the other crazy part. And he's already back to, you know, his let's... Let's figure out how to do this. Let's figure out how to do that. And then we were already managing the six kingdoms again. Like nothing ever happened. And like everything is just okay. So, and he even negotiates the Unsullied to basically not kill Jon Snow like they wanted to and not ship him. And now, well, I mean, they ship him back to the Night's Watch, but at the same time, he's get, he saved Jon's life in a certain extent. And you could argue that Jon saved Tyrion's in that final moment as well, when Daenerys basically wanted to chop him into little pieces or light him on fire or whatever she wanted to do. You could argue that they saved each other's lives in that particular moment. Let's talk about Jon Snow, because maybe you think that he's the one that should have been the ruler in the first place, because maybe his story was better. And I've seen that argument, too, on Twitter, that Jon's story was way better than Bran's. Okay, that's a matter of perspective, I guess. And and yes, John has maybe been through the most of any male character on the show. And maybe that gives him the right and maybe that makes it seem like he earned it. Okay. I respect that opinion, but I, John has said a million times over and I don't think this had anything to do with Daenerys, by the way. He didn't want it. He didn't want the throne. Never wanted the throne, wasn't going to want the throne under any circumstances. But what he did want was what was best for everyone in the realms. So if that's not kingly, though, I don't know what is. He was a king without the crown in that moment where he kills Daenerys. And he knew that was the only way. When Daenerys went up there and, you know, the dragon wings, that iconic image that I think we'll always remember as Game of Thrones fans, that iconic image where you see Danny walk out. The dragon's wings come out. It looks like she has the dragon's wings. Very, very cool moment. When she made her little speech, talking about how they were going to march on and and free the people of all these different places, the second Winterfell came out of her mouth, that was it for her. The second she pointed out Winterfell was one of the places that she was going to go and free people in, yeah, that meant the Starks were going to have to bend the knee. And did you think Sansa was going to bend the knee to, da- to Daenerys? Never. John knew the only way to save his people, to save his family, was to kill Daenerys. And I loved the scene after that, where it looks like Dragon is going to roast John. Although I kind of wish Dragon had did that, because I wanted to see if John walked out of the fire. Right, that Tar- that Targaryen blood did that pump through his veins. Would he have been able to walk through the fire and survive it? Don't know. 
We'll never know. Now, I kind of wish that that happened, but it didn't. But then when Dragon melts the Iron Throne, that was a big moment, I thought. At first, I'm like, really? That's what we're doing? And then the more I thought about it, I was like, like, you know, it was like in that moment, Dragon realized that it wasn't John that killed Danny. It was that throne. It was that power that corrupted her slowly but surely. And you want to talk about how long it took for her to turn or whether or not there were enough signs there. I'm on the side of I saw it coming. If not in the first episode of this season, there were other signs before that as well. They weren't as pronounced. But if you didn't see the look on her face when she rode into Winterfell and didn't get a warm welcome, didn't look like people really wanted her there at all, I think it started there. My opinion, you don't have to share it, but I, and then slowly but surely the signs were there that she was going to keep pushing forward and pushing and pushing and pushing. And then once she wasn't getting the responses that she wanted, or once she felt threatened, then the big turn happened and she roasted King's Landing slowly but surely. So I think that the signs were there. And then, you know, once she made her tyrant like speech at the end of all that, which seemed really popular with the Dothraki and the Unsullied. But, I mean, that's when John obviously knew that she had crossed that line too far. And oh, when Daenerys throws the, the, hand, the pin down for the hand of the queen, throws it down the stairs, oh, I thought he was dead right there. I thought she was going to roast him right there in that second, but she took him away. So maybe you think that the good is still in her a little bit, right? And you felt like maybe it was, but tyrants, a lot of them always think they're doing the right thing, right? They always feel like they're doing the they're doing good when in reality, they're already too far gone, right? And I know there's so many fans of Daenerys. I loved her too. Maybe I still do a little bit, but I just can't, I can't get past the fact that she basically committed, you know, mass murder when she just destroyed all of these innocent women and children and men of King's Landing when she didn't need to. And then even Grey Worm, as a matter of fact, when he starts executing people after the fact, the battle's over, and John's like, these are prisoners. He's like, nope, nope, against the queen. Down they go. So you can make that argument for him as well, although he gets to go off, and he he didn't want John to survive, but he gets to go off, and now they get their own plot of land as well, they get their own little own little kingdom. So, I mean, as far as Daenerys goes, it was sad to see her go. I thought it was a really nice moment when Dragon picks her up and kind of carries her off. And now we'll never know what happened to that dragon. That's the other thing. We will now never know what happened to the dragon. And that and that is brought up towards the end of the show, by the way, too. And another thing that I loved was the second that John gets to the Night's Watch, right? There's some nods, right? And Ghost finally gets his pets because he's a good boy and he deserved them before. Finally, I think if if we wanted anything as fans, we want that was one of the big things that we wanted, right? Was for was for Ghost to finally get the pets from John and the love that he deserved. And then what do they do? They basically just pack up and they abandon the Night's Watch. Everybody's like, "Yep, you know what? See ya. Don't need to be here anymore. Bye." Loved that because who's gonna know, right? Were they gonna ride up there and check on them? No, John knew he wasn't going to get any visitors. He even said to Arya, he said, you know, you can come visit me sometime. She's basically like, yeah, probably not going to do that. 
So he's like, all right, since nobody's looking, I'm going to take Tormund and I'm going to leave now with everybody else. So that's another interesting little plot point. Where are they going? What's happening? So uh, there, there's another thing that you could focus on as well. And uh, the, finally, just really quickly on Bran, I, did he know this all along? Was that, was that Raven's sight? Did he know exactly that this is what the outcome was going to be of everything? The way that he basically just sat there motionless in that chair. I'm not even talking about the fact that he's, he's, you know, he's paralyzed. And he has to be in that, in that wheelchair. No emotion. No expression, ne- never any dread at any time, even when the Night King looks like he's going to slice him into pieces, and that doesn't happen. Arya saves the day. He bit just basically randomly shows up at this gathering, and Tyrion says, I think Bran should be our king. He is the he, he has the best story, and screw democracy too, apparently, according to everyone that was sitting there, because Samwell has said, you know, let's leave it up to the people, and he got laughed out of the whole meeting, so... So they're like, let's choose a king, and they choose Bran. And for whether you think the reasons are good or not, I mean, he's pretty even keel. And if they need anything in the in the Six Kingdoms, it's an even keel king. And he's not a he's not a dumb kid. Maybe you can't even call him a kid anymore. He's a man, right? He's the king. So and you can't say the whole ah, he's young. That means he's not going to be a tyrant. He's not threatening Joffrey. Are we forgetting that already? No, I don't think we are. So youth has nothing to do with it. I think that he does have a little bit of wisdom beyond his years, right? And he definitely has this just level-headedness about him that if you need anything in a leader, sometimes it's level-headedness. Am I right? So I do think that while it was not a perfect finale, I'm not going to go ahead and go and say that because that would be ridiculous. It wasn't perfect. But it hit a lot of good beats. I think that it had a nice conclusion where it could have not had any conclusion at all or left a lot of things wide open. It did not do that. I think that there were some things that were wrapped up. There were some surprises that were involved. But I want to point out a tweet that I got at down and nerdy 757 from the show from that guy at TT Anonymous FFL where he says, Ned Stark won. His kids got kicked around. But as a unit, they they persevered. They secured the North, the real North, and the South. Arya may bring more fame and wonders as well. He's absolutely right. Ned Stark wins in all of this. Because at the end of the day, his kids are the ones that everybody are going to remember for the right reasons. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Game of Thrones finale. Up next, we're going to be talking Supergirl on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is David Hale from Supergirl. Hi, you're listening to the Down and Podcast. It's the quest for peace, so it's time to talk about the season four finale of Supergirl from the CW that aired this past weekend. And I will say this. Uh, this was a difficult season of Supergirl for me because there were so many moments where I wish they'd focused on one thing and not the other. Obviously, uh, first of all, spoilers from here on out by the way, for the finale of Supergirl and season four in general. I guess maybe part of it for me is because John Cryer was so amazing in his debut as Lex Luthor. I wished I would have gotten more of that. And we really, I'm, and we certainly get a ton of it in the finale. And if if anybody in this finale was fantastic, it was John Cryer as Lex Luthor. And I got to say, the the level of evil that he is 
almost can't even be quantified. And that does Lex Luthor more justice than most of the movies that he's been in, if not all of them. You could make that argument. I'm He's certainly my favorite TV, Lex Luthor. I can tell you that right now, by a freaking mile. So just the way that he carried himself, first of all, the things that he did in the nonchalant way that he did them, and his plans in general were just so Lex Luthor. I don't even know how else to describe it. So if anything was done perfectly by Supergirl this season, it was Lex Luthor. A brilliant portrayal by John Cryer and a great job by the writers from Lex Luthor. But this season of Supergirl was a little bit rocky. It's like, it's like first of all, they were trying to focus on the message of the season. Then they were trying to focus back on the story, then the message. But they weren't. I, maybe you could say, James, they were the same thing. They kind of weren't, though, because there were focuses. The focus was all over the place. First, your focus was on Agent Liberty and his crusade to basically, I don't want to say rid the world of aliens, but that's basically the gist of it, right? He wanted aliens to be, you know, to be gone and, you know, for humans to take their country slash world back, right? So, and that was his crusade. So the focus was on that for a little bit. Then it wasn't. And then the focus was on Red Daughter for a little bit. Then it wasn't. Then you tried to marry the two worlds and that kind of worked, but didn't. And then... That leads to, you know, and you really built up Agent Liberty, too. And he gets he gets the, the Heronel in his system, and now he's got powers, so he's a little bit more of a threat than he was before. And, and you know, he's got some power in the government now, which kind of gets taken away from him at one point. So you built up Agent Liberty so much. And then in your finale, you know, he shows up at the, at the island where Lex Luthor is, is basically building this thing that's going to destroy Argo City, this giant satellite laser beam type deal. And that's where a lot of the aliens, the aliens are forced to work on this thing. So he, Agent Liberty shows up there, not only to take out Lex Luthor and these aliens, but to now take out Supergirl as well. And you built up Agent Liberty so much, and he was almost zero threat and resistance to James Olsen to Kara, and to Alex, right? Almost zero resistance whatsoever. So you built him up so much, and you tossed him aside because you didn't need him anymore. But, okay, with so either you needed him or you didn't. That was my frustration about this whole thing. It was like, okay, you could have easily just focused on Red Daughter, made Agent Liberty just a part of the season, ended it, his story's over, we're going to focus on Red Daughter, and we're going to focus on Lex Luthor now. And Miss Tessmacher. Okay, fine. No problem with that at all. There's plenty to go there. But then you keep trying to kind of have him hang around, right? It didn't make sense for me. Didn't work. And then when you did build him up and made it seem like he was going to be a major part of it, he wasn't. And that was a frustrating thing for me. I didn't even want Agent Liberty there necessarily. I'm just saying if you're going to build him up and act like you're going to use him, make him a functional part of things. His functional part in this season was the overall message that the show wanted to send about refugees and about aliens and acceptance and things like that. His role was played in that, and that was a good part of the first part of this season. But at some point, you wrapping that up 
would be would be would have been fine. So you could focus on Red Daughter, and you could focus on Lex Luthor in that story. I don't feel like they did that, and I think it was a great disservice to them. And while you know the whole the whole how the whole Lex Luthor storyline played out in this finale was fun and it was great and it was interesting. There were still you're still pushing me over to something else that I didn't need to see. And I could have gotten more of that. I could have dragged this out for multiple episodes instead of having to deal with Agent Liberty's stuff. It just did it didn't need to be there in the latter half of the season for me. Just my opinion. But I mean, I, I did like, you know, Brainy being a little bit more edgy for a while, and then, you know, John kind of redeeming himself or Jean redeeming himself by not abandoning the aliens there and trying to overload the system so they could take down that satellite and save Argo City. And then Dreamer steps up big as well. Loved Dreamer this season. That was the other bright spot for Supergirl for me was Dreamer. I thought the Dreamer was fierce. Dreamer was is, is one of those heroes that you want to believe in, right? When she actually made that speech with Kara in that interview and she comes out, I thought that that was wonderful, wonderful scene. Probably one of the best scenes of the season. And I hope we get to see a lot more of Dreamer on Supergirl going forward. I think that that is a, a an amazing character and a great job by Nicole Maines on that character as well. And and uh, the relationship with Brainy I thought was really really good too. So, I'm not even saying that good things weren't done on Supergirl this season. There definitely were. It's just that your finale could have been so much better. I just feel like it could have been so much better than it actually was if you allowed yourselves to focus on this Lex Luthor storyline a little bit longer. You could make the argument that they did. I wasn't feeling it. Wasn't feeling it at all. And that's a shame. because, And maybe you only had Lex Luthor for so many episodes, right? I get that. You can't use John Cryer, but for so many episodes, maybe it was a budgetary thing. I, I have no knowledge of that whatsoever. But maybe that's part of it. You couldn't really use him that much. And Miss Tessmacher certainly played her role, and I think that that was very well done as well as far as her being the one that was the, was the go-between. She was like the one you needed to be able to find out where Lex was and what was planning because Lex certainly wasn't going to talk about that, right? But I, I don't know. I feel like I got more of something that I didn't enjoy enough or I didn't think was executed well and not enough of what I thought really was executed well from Supergirl this season. I actually did enjoy the Red Daughter storyline. I liked the, the, the spin that they put on it. I love the Lex turning on Red Daughter in this episode. And we get to see her kind of save Kara at one point after almost killing Kara before that. But that actually gave Kara back to Alex, right? That That's how Alex helped Alex remember who Kara really was and broke that whole spell that Jean had to put on her so that she didn't get ratted out to the DEO. So in a way that that it all kind of was worth it, right? But I I loved that little twist at the end, and but and the other thing that that bugged me, even though I know it's not going to stick, is when Lena shoots Lex in in the end of the episode, and it's like really he's gone already. We barely got any Lex Luthor, and now he's gone already. I actually thought Kara killed him at first, and then we find out, of course, in true Lex Luthor fashion, that wasn't the case. But I love that in Lex's dying breath, he says, look, your friends are lying to you. And that's, we were waiting for Lena to turn, and there it's going to be. And then you see her 
going to that party later and she's just acting like, yeah, they're still my friends and everything's fine. But then after the fact, you get to slam that drink on the picture. And it's like, yeah, this is not going to go well for the next season of Supergirl for sure. And then, of course, we get the tease for Leviathan and, you know, everything's going to tie in to Crisis on Infinite Earths. And there's a lot to look forward to when it comes to Supergirl. And I'm not even saying I didn't enjoy the season as a whole. I just wish they'd gone the pod arc route, okay? Give me X amount of episodes of Agent Liberty. Then give me X amount of episodes of Red Daughter slash Lex Luthor. You can even make Lex Luthor a third pod in the season, right? You had enough episodes to do that. Instead, you're trying to, you know, kind of interweave everything together. And I know you're trying to get to put out a, a great message for the season. You're trying to put the spotlight on something. You're trying to talk about real world issues. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. What I'm saying is, is that the execution of the overall season, the overall story could have been better if it was broken up. You could still portray your message with these other characters. You don't need, you didn't need agent Liberty in this second half of the season in order to portray the message that she wanted to portray because Lex felt the same way in a much more extreme fashion, okay? So you could have used Lex for that. You didn't need Agent Liberty for any of this. And I'm not even saying I didn't enjoy Agent Liberty because I did. I thought for the first half of the season, he was great. Didn't need to be there for the second half of the season. So I have up and down feelings about Supergirl from this past year, but I do think there's a lot to look forward to, and I know that there's going to be a big role for her coming up in Season 5. And and we've got Leviathan and Crisis on Infinite Earths. When we know from the comics how big of a role she plays in that. That's going to do it for my season four review of Supergirl, the Supergirl finale. Up next, let's do some nerd news on the Down and Nerdy podcast. This is comic book writer Tom King, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Letting the dust settle once again this week, it's time for nerd news. And I say that because the first story deals with comics, and one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite guys in the biz, Tom King. Now, The report started first from Bleeding Cool, where they basically reported that Tom King was being taken off Batman by DC at issue 85 and that it wasn't his choice. That was the gist of the story, not the whole story. So, little time passes, you know, more digging is done, little digging was done, and then Comic Book Resources, later on in the day, comes out with a report that, okay, yes, Tom King is leaving Batman at the end of this year, but... He has several other projects in the works with DC that are going to be coming out this year and next year. Now, remember, this is coming right on the heels of about when Tom said there's going to be a groundbreaking moment for the character of Batman, something that's never been done before and, you know, might change the character forever sort of thing. And now it looks like we might not get to ever find out what that is, although I'm sure Tom will tell us at some point, as long as there's no NDA or anything attached to it. But, I mean, it's easy to... Forget that. I mean, Tom's got Heroes in Crisis that's going right now that's really good. I mean, when nominated for an Eisner for Mr. Miracle, he's already won an Eisner for his work on Batman, if I'm not mistaken, right? So Tom's been on Batman for three years. That's a long time to be writing any character. Not just for the writer themselves, but for but for any for a publisher, anything. How many writers do you know at Marvel and DC that have been working on the same book? For that long. I mean, Joshua Williamson pops into my head working on The Flash, but there aren't many writers that do that. They don't work on characters for this this long anymore. So that in itself, I think, 
is pretty groundbreaking and admirable. And you want to talk about whether or not you've loved the stuff that Tom has done or not. The storytelling has been so different and it's been so refreshing since he's been on the book, I think. And you know what? I, I love the fact that Tom is not afraid to take chances and tell stories with a character that might not have been told before or even an angle that's been taken before. But at the same time, he knows when to pay homage to the past as well, which I also love. And he does that not just with Batman, but the but the you know the villains, the rogues gallery, with the sidekicks. There's just so much that Tom's done since he's been on Batman. And I don't want it to end either, but it's been a hell of a run. And I want to thank Tom. If this is indeed, we, we still don't have actual confirmation from DC or Tom King on any of this as of me recording this podcast. So I will say that. But if this is the end, Tom, thank you, man, because, I mean, you've been through a lot since you've been writing Batman, some stuff that you should no nobody should ever have to go through. But you put your heart and soul into it. I know you did that. You did some wonderful things. And thank you so much for that. I mean, who knows what he could bring to another character that we might not even be thinking of. I mean, could you have even imagined Mr. Miracle? I mean, what he did, if you haven't read Tom's Omega Men run, I recommend that highly. Go check that out. That had Kyle Rayner in it too, by the way. So, you know, maybe we could have a Green Lantern book by Tom King. Maybe there's just a combination out there that we're not even thinking of. Remember, he wrote Grayson where Dick Grayson was a secret agent and he wasn't Nightwing anymore. I mean, you want somebody to take a different spin on something, you hire Tom King. So who knows? What book we could see Tom King do next? If you want to speculate, let us know at Down Nerdy 757 Love to hear your suggestions, what you think Tom could do next. Speaking of what's next, how about what's next for Jean-Luc Picard? Because Star Trek Picard released a teaser this week for the show that's going to be coming out on CBS All Access. Now, if you look at listen to the narration, apparently he led the greatest rescue fleet ever. And then something happened. We're not, we don't know for sure what that was. In this context, we do know for sure that he's an admiral, which is a cool thing to find out. I think we kind of already knew that from stories that came out, but this really con- this really confirms it. Apparently, he's also a winemaker now. That's a couple of amusing vintages. You get to see a case of wine there. Didn't get to see a year or anything on it. I'm assuming it's, you know, pretty fresh still. You know, you might want to let it age a little bit. But it, he's got a hell of a vineyard. I can tell you that right now. But we do know that he has left Starfleet. We do not know why. And the narrator says, hey... Why did you leave Starfleet? And then we get the shot of Jean-Luc Picard himself, Patrick Stewart, and that's kind of it. So we really learn very little other than how many wine bottles come in a case at his vineyard about the actual show or where it's going. So apparently we will spend some time on why he left Starfleet. I'm sure that'll be a little bit of a part of it. He's very much not a part of Starfleet right now, I can tell you that. And I want to bring up something that Mike from Den of Geek brought up and because I was still felt the, I felt the same way when I was watching this trailer and I was like I can't put my finger on what kind of a vibe this has and it was the prisoner it actually it was absolutely positively 100% the prisoner so if Mike you were absolutely right at way out stuff too by the way if you want to follow Mike on Twitter absolutely right it really did have that prisoner vibe where you know, maybe this is something more than we actually think it is sort of thing. Maybe there's more to this. Maybe it's a trapped in an alternate reality sort of situation. I don't know. But it just seemed like there's more going on here 
then we really realize. So I'm curious to find out where this is going to go. Actually, I might be looking more forward to this than I did for Star Trek Discovery. And that's saying a lot. But, you know, if you're a Picard fan, you're going to say that, right? So that makes sense. Now, speaking of something that I haven't really been looking forward to, if I'm being honest, and that's Terminator Dark Fate. First trailer came out for that. Not going to be able to see that until, I think it's November 1st is when that's going to be released. Now, we do know why why Sarah Connor is so interested in Danny's character. I mean, she says that she used to be her, so that's why she you know wants to protect her. Makes sense, right? One thing that I will say for this trailer is that Grace is a certified badass, isn't she? My goodness. I mean, we get to see a, a lot about how battle-tested she actually is. And again, she looks like she's going all out to protect Danny as well. And we also get to see Gabriel Luna playing, if I'm being honest, your stereotypical unstoppable Terminator that we've seen in the past movies anyway. Although making that other Terminator from that metal rod that was thrown at him, pretty cool stuff. I will say that. Now, we also get to see, you know, it was also cool to see Arnold, but if I'm being honest, and I know it's a Terminator movie, so don't at me for this, but, I mean, where's the substance here? I guess maybe the substance is supposed to be in Linda, Linda Hamilton's character coming back at Sarah Connor and, you know, protecting Danny, but we don't really get to see almost any of Danny other than being protected and running away, and I think she has, what, two lines in the trailer total, we don't know anything about Danny based on this trailer. Nothing. So I love the fact that we're focusing on more of a female cast here. And I think that that's a good thing. But it still feels like you're either in it for the big effects or you're out. Because the first trailer gives us almost no depth on the characters that we're supposed to care about. We we see Danny being protected, right? But we have no basis for other than you don't want to see this young woman get murdered by a Terminator or taken. We have no substance for why we should be rooting for her to be saved. Quite frankly, I mean, you have to care about a character before you can care about whether or not they get taken or killed, right? Other than the fact that you obviously don't want innocent people being murdered, okay? I understand that. And I certainly don't. It's not like I want her to be murdered in the middle of the street by a Terminator. But at the same time, I'd like to figure out why we're supposed to care about her character, why she's being protected so much. We don't know anything about her other than descriptions in a synopsis that we might have been given. I want to see that. I want to see the relationship, too, between Danny and... And Grace, we don't really get that. We don't understand other than she's clearly protecting her what's going on there. So I know it's the first trailer, but I really hope we get a little bit more depth in another trailer. I get that you have to show the action element. Otherwise, what's the point of a Terminator movie at all? But I don't know. It's just I did not get the vibe I was hoping from this first Terminator Dark Fate trailer. Hopefully that'll change with the second one. Speaking of stuff that's going to change, Sony Interactive Entertainment looks like they're going to be launching a unit to adapt their games into movies and TV shows. This means, you know, big screen, small screen, streaming, and all that stuff. This according to The Hollywood Reporter. Now, PlayStation Productions will be he- is headed by Asad Kuzelbosch and overseen by Sony Entertainment Interactive Entertainment Chairman Worldwide Studios, Sean Layden. Now, this is basically Sony saying that they're taking control of their own properties to be adapted. That's exactly 
what they're doing here. As a matter of fact, it, one of the quotes in the article from the Hollywood Reporter is that you know they you know instead of licensing their own IPs, why not why not do it themselves instead of licensing it to some someone else? Now, think about this for a second. They really do have 25 years and more than 100 original properties to choose from here. Obviously, you've got Sony Pictures right there to help you with distribution. So this does almost seem like a no-brainer. And then you also get the idea that, okay, they, they also said in the article they don't really want to rush into anything, and why would they have to do that? They can take their time. They're not really going to set a number for themselves, like, we've got to get this many out. Well, here's the thing that worried me. Everything was going fine. I'm like, okay, seems like they've got the right idea. But it was when Layden said something about how they looked at Marvel and the success they've been having, and I'm like, oh, man, here we go again. Or at least I hope not here we go again. How many studios have looked at that same thing, thought that same thing, and it just didn't work out for them? Dark Universe, I'm looking at you. I mean, even DC films, to a certain extent, right, based on how things started. And they even tried to do it a little bit differently. But they rushed it because of Marvel, it seems like. My opinion and my opinion alone. But they they rushed it because they saw what Marvel had. Dark Universe just assumed they'd be able to have one, and that didn't work out. You can even look at the recent Robin Hood movie. They, that was supposed to be the start of a series of movies and spinoffs, and... That's probably not going to happen anymore either. Everybody's trying to build a universe because of what Marvel's doing. And I'm not saying that PlayStation's going to build a, you know, God of War, Uncharted, Metal Gear, Solid universe here or anything like that. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't think that's what they're doing. But at the same time, and they even admit that this is a lofty goal, but just saying that you're looking at Marvel at all means that you're not paying attention on just doing your own thing, which is what Sony needs to do here. They need to just do your own thing. You want to adapt your games? Do it. Absolutely. I'm not saying I wouldn't love to see a God of War movie or even a TV series for that matter. I'm not saying that I don't finally want the friggin' Last of Us movie, again, or TV show because this is stuff that's already been announced. But at the same time, if you're going to do what Marvel's going to do, that's the thing that worries me. And I'm not sure that you want to set that goal for yourself. How about make one thing and see what happens? Make two things and see what happens. Think about it. Marvel had to have success with Iron Man before any of this could be possible. And then even Captain America had to succeed and so on and so forth. And it wasn't until they almost got to the middle of phase one where they went, wait a second, this is working, right? We can keep doing this, right? I'm not saying they didn't have long-term plans, but I'm sure that they didn't have super long-term plans until they got he until they got to that certain point. Now everybody's looking at Marvel 10 years later and going, "Wow, look what they did. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do the same thing?" Don't think that way. Do it your way because nobody, you know, Marvel did it their way before anybody did it Marvel's way, right? So, they figured it out and did it their own way and made it work. Do it your own way and make it work and then maybe you'll have some longevity. Maybe you'll have something because otherwise this whole PlayStation Productions thing might not be around as long as we hope it will be. And I'm not going to get into the whole should video game movies even be done or TV shows. Not going to get into that. I've taught one over that a thousand times. Let's just take a wait and see approach and see what we get here. 
That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, we're going to talk about the Batman and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. That's right, Batman and TMNT interviews with the cast and creative team behind it are up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you're listening to me on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Never thought I'd get to say these words out loud. Batman vs. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is going to be coming from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment to Blu-ray and DVD on June 4th, available, available on digital HD right now. And at WonderCon this year, got to sit down with almost everybody behind the production, starting with producer Ben Jones. And the first question for Ben was, what are the challenges in working with two different franchises like this that might have different tones from d- completely different companies? The good the good thing with Batman and Turtles is there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot about ninjas. There's a lot about fighting. There's a lot about living in big cities. So um, so they're actually very compatible properties when you break it down that way. And surprisingly, the notes were really light. In fact, most of the notes from Nickelodeon were about, we think Batgirl should do more cool stuff. So that was really surprising. <laughs> My question for Ben, first one that I had for him was, with the comic book being so great, how did you approach this and not going just shot for shot of the comic. When you're doing, uh, you mentioned the comic run, which is excellent. How do you go into this and say, well, we don't want to do shot for shot of what the comic did and changing up a few things? Well, um, we, we had to sort of look at the comic and see what would work in animation, what wouldn't. So there, are, there is some stuff that we didn't do. Uh, and then we added a bunch of stuff uh, to sort of fill in the blanks. But um, it was just basically trying to figure out what would translate correctly to animation. Because sometimes, like the crime, the crime alley scene isn't in the movie, just because... In animation, that would really slow the pacing down. Yeah. You know, you can read it at your own pace when you've got a comic book in front of you, but sure. when it's a movie, it's like that would be like slamming the brakes on the whole thing. So we, that scene got cut. This next question I thought was a really interesting one, and that was this movie's PG 13, and were, was he asked to make this movie a little bit more grown up? That was, in fact, part of, the, part of the deal right from the beginning. So I think that's something Warner Brothers and Nickelodeon negotiated on. And uh, if we did get notes from Nickelodeon, most of them were about that. You know, they were a little, a little leery of it. But um, in the end, uh, I think we got something that made everybody happy. My next question for Ben Jones was, how did you manage the villains in this movie? Speaking of the villains, how did you manage the villains in this movie? Um, well, we sort of um, gave a main storyline to just two of the villains, Roz and Shredder. And then we segregated off like a, a third of the movie that's just going bananas with everybody else. Okay, that's so, right. Okay, yeah, right in the middle asking, yeah. is where we have the whole Arkham Asylum scene. Another question I wanted to ask producer Ben Jones because Kevin Eastman you know the co-creator of the Ninja Turtles was there any input from him at any point. Was there any input from Kevin Eastman at any point or did you reach out to him on any of that on the, the turtle side? Yes actually there's a drawing that Michelangelo does of Batman in the movie and we had Kevin Eastman do that drawing for us. Nice, nice. So I love in the middle it. of the movie there's it. a drawing it's just and, and again we told him this is Michelangelo's drawing of Batman so it's not Kevin's drawing of Batman it's Kevin's drawing of Michelangelo's drawing of Batman. <laughs> Next up was writer Marley Halperin Grazer of the Teenage Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. My first question for him was simple. Did you ever think you'd be able to work on something like this in a million years? We throw out hypotheticals here, yeah. but when you, when you saw this project, project is, this, is this anything you ever thought in a million years oh. you'd actually be able to do? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, even though I work at Warner Brothers, I'm still excited that they let me write Batman. Uh, and then the <laughs> fact that they're letting me have him meet the Ninja Turtles. No, it's amazing. Because, uh, you know, I, I read the comic when it came out, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And, and DC does a lot of cool crossovers in the comics. It's to the point where it's cool, but it's not like... It 
doesn't blow your mind when right. Batman meets the Predator because you're like, right. well, that's the kind of thing Batman does. Uh, <laughs> but you're right. You, it does. It felt like there was a hard line where you could never animate these because then a whole another level of corporate rights get involved. Uh, and it was really, really when I got the the call that they were making this movie and that they were thinking of having me write it, it was very exciting. Definitely not something I would have guessed when the comic came out. If you asked, oh, is this something you guys make, might make a movie of? I definitely would have said absolutely not. There's no way. Uh, so it was very, very exciting that it's happening, and it's really exciting that I got to work on it. Next question from Marley was, how quick was the decision to kind of deviate from the comic and take out that interdimensional travel part that you might have read about? The decision was made really, really fast. Uh, I read through the comic assuming we were going to keep it interdimensional, and so I had a plan. I was all I had in my mind it all set for how we were going to do it, and then the first time I sat down with Ben Jones, the first thing he said was, let's not do portals, let's say Gotham and New York just exist in the same place, and the first thing I thought was like, oh no, but all that work I just did, and then I was like, okay, no, that's fine, that's fine, yeah, cool, cool, yeah, they just drove there, they just drove there, yeah, yeah, it's better, it's better, and I, by the end of that meeting, I was completely on board. It is so much simpler. I mean, for example, if we had stuck with the portals, I definitely wouldn't have had time for some of the smaller character moments that I wanted because we would have had to spend all the time explaining the multiverse. My next question for Marley was, were the costume designs chosen based on how the characters were written for this movie. When you when you're going through those those costume designs that you mentioned, is it a I wrote the character like for Batgirl, for example, doing the Burnside mm-hmm. costume, it's like, well, I wrote her this way, so we should use this costume, or kind of vice versa. Does that factor in? Uh, it doesn't usually, but for Batgirl, it probably does a little bit. I mean, they could have not used it, but I I definitely wrote Batgirl, assuming we were that's we were doing why, Batgirl of Burnside. Burnside that's yeah, why, uh, no, yeah. I, uh, for Batgirl, yes. I just I don't think it even occurred to me we might do a different version of Batgirl, but that was probably me just being optimistic. Uh, so. Normally, I would say no. Normally, I just kind of write the version of the character that's, that is fun for me or speaks to me and then probably works no matter how they design it. Uh, but yeah, I think the Batgirl Burnside was was still the, the current Batgirl continuity when I was writing it. So I just was going off of those comics and assuming they would do it that way. Uh, so it might have been weird if they had gone with a you different design. You being the fan, I kind of figured that's yes. what you were going yeah. for. Yeah. Next up, it was Damian Wayne himself, Ben Giroux. The first question for him was, how do you find your inner Damian? What's, what's cool about this role is you know you've got this sort of funny world of the Ninja Turtles but you've got almost this serious brooding world of Batman and I think the Damian Wayne version of Robin particularly in this movie helps bridge that gap of styles because he's both funny and snarky he's always making quips you want to laugh at him he's also kind of a badass and he spends some time kicking butt um so I think that that sort of duality of the character is interesting, kind of helps bridge those two styles of, uh, of the show. My first question for Ben was, what was it like to play with the dynamic between the Turtles and Damien? I think he could totally have different relationships with all the Turtles as well, yes. like finding Michelangelo annoying or something. What was it like to play with that dynamic? Absolutely. So I think, you know, I think Damien in the film really finds a bond with, uh, ultimately, probably Donatello the most. Uh, they're both... They're both sort of silly and funny, um, but he's got moments with each of them, and uh, and I certainly think that the turtles' individual personalities come out uh, in this film as well. So yeah, I think what's so cool about this movie is you've got all of these iconic characters having really interesting, even if it's just one or two passing lines, with characters that you don't anticipate them ever having crossed paths with. You know, you get to see Batman battle Shredder. That's awesome. (laughs) My final question for Ben Giroux was, we don't get to see uh, the fun aspect 
aspect of Damian Wayne very often. So what was it like to kind of do that a little bit more than most? We don't really get to see the fun side of Damian very often. Yeah. Like the comics, animation, and like, what, what's it like to kind of play up that aspect of him even more? It was great. Uh, you know, I think I think that's what's so fun about this character is it's it's a mix between this kind of wannabe vigilante who's snarky and a little bit of a douchebag mixed with this kid who's vulnerable and just wants his dad to approve of him and just wants people to respect him and he's smaller than everybody something I know about uh, and we actually Troy and I were, were joking Troy Baker who plays both Batman and Joker in this um, Troy's like 6'5". I'm 5'2". So we really, the, the height disparity in real life has definitely translated on screen. Um, yeah, so ultimately Robin's just this kid looking for respect and he's, he's got a little bit of put on bravado. But he is a skilled fighter. You know, he's, he's, he's good. Uh, and, he, and he kicks some butt in this movie, which is fun to see. Hard to talk about Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles without talking about the Shredder. And how about a- Andrew Cushino? who is the voice of Shredder in this movie. First question for him was, how does Shredder do meeting a character like Rachel Ghoul? Shredder has an inherent ability to look down on anyone. So he's always looking at everybody like, what is it exactly that you can do for me? And when is it that it, when exactly is the point going to be when I will tire of you and have to dispose of you? So he's thinking in terms of that because he's like, I don't really care about anyone except myself because he has that that sense of evil, that sense of disconnect comes from that sense of fractured, damaged vanity and ego where that's a very dangerous thing to be around because it, it, it puts someone in that kind of sociopathic kind of realm where they're gonna, they'll do and say things, really horrible things to get what they want done. Then when you put him into a body where he's capable of physically doing the things he can do, you got a really bad individual. So that that's kind of you know who he is as he approaches Ra's al Ghul or any of the other people in that world, where he's looking at everyone from an evaluative. I mean, they always are looking at each other from an evaluative standpoint. But because he's so ego-driven, he is, and not driven so much by a noble or what he thinks is a higher cause, he's really more so the person who's like, what is it you can do for me? Because otherwise, I'm just simply going to consider killing you right here. My first question for Andrew was, what's it like when Batman and Shredder meet up for the first time? Shredder's used to dealing with teenagers with the Turtles, and now he's coming into Batman's world and meeting an adult who's also a very skilled fighter as well and on his level. So what is it like when those two worlds kind of meet, when those two kind of meet up against each other? I honestly think that there is, when they first make contact, Shredder's kind of got this thing in his head like he's like who is this individual in the costume alright let's handle this and then let's get on to the thing ten seconds later he's like okay this was not what I expected (laughs) alright so I'm going to have to do some actual fighting so he he underestimates the Batman but then you know obviously approaches the fight still from the standpoint of well, I'm not going to stand here to fight you to fight. If I'm not, like, I have to get somewhere. So if I'm, I have no interest in beating you because I don't know who you are. So once I tire of this, I'll just go. And if I need to damage you to get out, I will. I don't care. And, and that puts him in that place of, 
of being when he does get to that point where he's like he has to face up with people where it's like yeah these this is a little out of my usual adversary but it, the, the same rules still apply where he's like I'm still looking at everybody like what are you going to do for me Final question for Andrew Kashina was, how do you compare Shredder's leadership with the Foot Clan with Raz's approach with the League of Shadows? They have that sense of, one has the sense or the, uh, the, <clears throat> the, the mandate of the, the grander vision and goal for the way things should be. Shredder is, again, very personally driven, so he's kind of like, he keeps, he's prone to keep people in line through fear and intimidation. And people just fall in line because that's who he is. So it's they both have the same level of ruthlessness, but they their demeanors are different because Basil Gul is generally a very calm individual before he throws you to the piranhas. Um, Shredder is the person who is practically spitting through his mask before he sends you the piranhas. So it's more sort of the result is kind of the same, but they. They kind of, you know, how they handle it is Shredder's always a, a little bit, you know, three cups of coffee over the limit. So Up next, Leonardo himself, Eric Bowser, sat down with us to talk about Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. My first question for him was, what's it like getting Batman and the Ninja Turtles together? Speaking of mind-altering, this has got to be pretty cool, right? Getting the uh, Batman and the Ninja Turtles together. What's it like, bro? What I love most about it is that it's like Ninja Turtles has touched so many, uh, on, on all the iterations, they have uh, been in many dimensions. So I feel like... Like, um, you know, it's it's not uncommon for them to be in the same universe as Batman. Right. Yeah. Just makes sense. Yeah. Next question up for Eric was, how does Leonardo handle himself in his first interaction with Batman? I mean, he he, he goes for the swords. <laughs> He's definitely, you know, as, as calm, cool, collected as he is, there's definitely a fight. Uh, but again, it's, it's not out of anger or out of like for no reason he's there to defend his, himself as well as his brother uh, but you know and ask Batman why the heck he wears blue because Leo wears blue you know it's like go home and change Batman yeah. both being leaders the next question for Eric Bowser about Leonardo was how do the leadership styles between Batman and Leonardo compare we see you know Batman as we know he loves to work on his own he doesn't necessarily want anyone to be there by his side, whereas Leo has to deal with his brothers all the time. But we see that Batman's family comes out of the woodwork, like Robin, Nightwing, Batgirl. So that's kind of like his family. I mean, it, it, it's great how they're able to kind of tie that in. Uh, the similarities between the, the TMNT brothers and then Batman and his clan. So it's like, he, he needs them. He needs even though he doesn't want to admit it, he definitely needs people there by his side. My final question for Eric Bowser was, what's it like when Leonardo encounters some of Batman's villains in Gotham? The Turtles certainly have their set of villains that they deal with. What's it like when Leonardo encounters something like Ra's al Ghul or maybe oh, the Joker or something it's, like that? It's insane. It's like, you know, something they've never seen before. There, there are some pretty crazy villains in the TMNT universe. But I always think the Batman villains are the weirdest characters ever made. <laughs> their their fashion sense, their their whole sense of purpose, like who they who they are, who they were, and I just I just love the Batman villains. Uh, uh, 
Joker, Two-Face, Catwoman, Harley. I mean, they're all crazy. As we were kind of winding the interviews down, it was time to sit down with Troy Baker, who's playing Batman and the Joker in this movie, by the way, and Cass Anvar, who's playing Raz Agul, Ra's al Ghul, whoever, however you want to pronounce it, although that is explained during this at some point. Now, the first question was to Troy about how trippy it was being Batman and Joker in the same movie, first one to ever do that, and then they just kind of started interviewing each other. I was so trippy that I stumbled walking into this, to the studio. You always, I don't know if you felt this way, but I always feel like they're going to recast me. That this is just glorified scratch track, and it was like, ah, we tried it with Troy. And then you start realizing, oh, I'm being an arrogant, pompous ass by thinking that my performance could bring down something that's as awesome as Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja It's a good concept, you know? Um, and as you go through it, you, the movie that plays out in my mind is totally different than the movie that, that we're going to watch today together. And the first time I watched that Shredder fight, I was like, that is exactly, like, that's what I want to see happen with comic books. We couldn't really talk about this, but End of the Spider-Verse was the first, like, yeah, hero movie. I was like, that's a comic book come to life. And, and then we had that moment, that Shredder fight in the beginning where I was like, I can see this as the panels and it's just popping out into life. You're one of my favorite characters, dude. I've been loving this character for a decade. Like, Ra's al Ghul. Yeah? yeah. So people are asking, is, is it Ra's al Ghul or Ra's al Ghul? And apparently DC has uh, come out with a statement. Have they? Saying, yes. Uh, and they said Ra's al Ghul. Ra's al Ghul is how he's known, and only the League of Assassins will call him Ra's al Ghul. What a great way to hand wave the noise. <laughs> Yeah. Only the ones who have been a part of League of Shadows and didn't really grow up the comic but books I and watch animated series, they call him this. I call him Ra's al Ghul and I figure he's the head of the League of Assassins and he's the demon's head, so uh, I call him Jeremy. <laughs> Did you, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to interview him just because maybe you guys are going to no, ask it. I grew up and I, probably, I don't know, we've... You and I have talked before. You and I have talked before. You and I have talked before. We've talked before. I talk about this all the time, how I used to race home every day, and at 4 o'clock, uh, Batman the Animated Series came on, and I was like, just there's a great shot uh, that you guys are going to see in the opening shot where I'm like, it, they, they looked in the wind. That's mm -hmm. the opening from the animated series. This is the dark, the, the the dark series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dark Batman. It's the yeah, blimp yeah. You know, with, the, with the spotlights down, and nice. I was like, ah, I yeah. freaked out. But, uh, <coughs> what was his name? Not Christopher Lee, but who played him in the animated series? David um, Warner. David, 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 David Warner. Warner. David, David Warner played David, David Warner played Ra's al Ghul in the series. And I was like, man, they did such a good job of like, that's, that's, that's the presence that I feel from this character and the animation style, the character style is so similar. The first mm -hmm. time that I heard you when you first walk out, I'm not going to respond anything. When you first walk out, I went, motherfucker, man. <laughs> I've been okay. wanting, no, but I've been, ever since uh, Batman Begins, ever since Liam Neeson kicks, kicks this guy's ass uh, in, in the Batman. Chest, your arms will take care of themselves. I was like, that's really smart. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I was in love with this character. And, then I, and I've been collecting comics since I was a kid. And just the idea of a character that is centuries old, that, mm -hmm. that has all this experience, all this knowledge from the masses of humanity from going, like a vampire. He's been living year after year after year watching empires rise and fall. That's an incredible character yeah. to, to be able to portray someone who is so methodical and so focused on one mission. And he's not necessarily wrong. No. Like, I mean, Batman and him are not necessarily going for different things. It's just 
it's just Ross is willing to do whatever it takes, whereas Batman's like, no, no. It's kind of like uh, the other comic book company has a similar kind of dichotomy between Professor X and Magneto. Right. The other company. Yeah. <laughs> that which shall not be named at this particular table, but if you catch me outside. <laughs> I, I've always looked at, at uh, Batman and Roz as Holmes and Moriarty. Yes. Um, we're only, we're, we just happen to be on opposite sides of this, but really if we'd sit down, it's like that scene in Heat where Pacino and De Niro sit down from across each other like, we we this. could do this because we're really on the same side. You just happen to have a badge and I don't. That's a great scene. It's a, That's a great, great scene. scene. I don't want to have to bring you down. I don't want to have to I kill don't you. You don't understand. <laughs> if I see you, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you understand? If I see you. <laughs> worst De Niro and worst. That's your takeaway from this round. It was like, <laughs> it actually hurt his performance in the movie we saw later. Final question for the guys was, and this was a very interesting and funny response that we got to this. It was, does Roz actually view Shredder as someone who could potentially marry Talia and he could pass the mantle to? You'll love this response. How are you going to do <laughs> He offered clear by the. So answer the question for our, for our gentleman friend. But like the nerd in me is going. You are, How? You are talking. <laughs> you are talking to a man who, as I said, has has been alive for centuries. This man does not suffer fools. <laughs> well, and um, you know, I mean, Shredder, he he can get things done in his own way, but. Roz doesn't like to play with others. He likes to be in charge, and he likes the people to be at least mentally stable. <laughs> so, so that he can so, steal their semen and impregnate his daughter to give him a bastard son that would go on to be his Robin. That's yeah. how this works. That's how it works. So I don't know. If, I don't know if Roz would would view Shredder as uh, particularly competent and dependable. Well, guy Once he can bad, handle amphibians, the then maybe. <laughs> Which is really the crazier. The blender's a little bit more functional. <laughs> what if you went to a guy that's not scared of bats? You're like, I find them cute. Like, well, my whole thing doesn't work. You know, as much as I loved the comic from James Tynan and company, I never thought in a million years we would ever get any kind of animated movie or anything like that, or it would ever go beyond a comic. Now we're coming up on the third volume of the comic, and now we have... Warner Brothers Home Entertainment and Nickelodeon working together to bring Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to an animated movie, and I think that is fantastic. You can see it on digital HD right now. If you want to wait for the Blu-ray DVD box set, yep, you can get that on June the 4th, so that is coming up really, really soon as well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to everybody at Warner Brothers Home Entertainment for letting me hang out with the cast and producers and directors and everybody involved with Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If you want more info on what we're doing here at the Down and Nerdy Podcast, you can always go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Make sure you're following us on social media as well, at downandnerdy757 on Instagram and Twitter, facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.